he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and the magic and the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker. Your name, let me check the credits, is still Barbara Belgetti's. And hello. How are you? I bet you're great. So I am, I think this is the first episode of In the Details I'm recording from my new apartment in Astoria, Queens. I can't remember now. I think I talked about it in the Cujo episode that I was mid-move and um, now I am fully moved and uh, more or less, you know, there's some boxes in the living room, but I do not live in that other apartment anymore and I'm thrilled. I'm just so happy. I love this neighborhood. If you're not from New York, if you're not familiar with Astoria, the context would be that it is just somehow the most perfect mix of like neighborhoody tree lined streets and busy main streets with tons of restaurants and bars and stores and everything you need and um, like the best food, like so much fucking good food in Astoria. If, there's even an Applebee's. So like I am not I am being nonspecific when I say good. Your definition could be different from mine. And there's still an Applebee's. Um, and I mean, it's like super close to Manhattan. It's like right over the river in Queens. And so like, it's very easy to get to work. Anyway, it's great. I lived here before. I am so happy to be back. I am literally blocks from the first apartment I lived in, in Astoria that I moved into, I think in like 2013 or 2014. Um, and it has been a very strange ensuing journey of years since then. But, um, whatever. What are you going to do? Right. What else was I going to do with myself? Like that was the story. So anyway, um, that's just to catch you up on, you know, context of who I am, where I am, what's going on. Um, but this week, what we are going to be mostly talking about. And if you were a longtime listener of in the details, this may be a familiar movie to you, but we are going to be talking about 1987's blood rage which was, I believe, filmed in 1983. So 1983, 1987, tomato, tomato, split the difference. Let's say 1985, that was the year I was born. How bad could it be of a year, you know? Uh, and specifically, we are going to be talking about Louise Lasser. And what I think is, oh, I just think this is, this performance is, the word iconic is thrown around so much, like what's iconic anymore, you know? But there's something about what she's doing in this movie that is so campy and so perfect and so um, good, bad drag, which it, I've, I've been kind of queening out on that. On, All right, Mary, we've been recapping Dragula season three. And one of the queens, Louisiana Purchase, uh, she got feedback from Peaches Christ one week that you do good, bad drag. And it was a compliment, and it is. And I think gay men, I think people who appreciate queer, campy culture know exactly why that's good. You know, I, I think another example, again, for the Patreon episodes for All Right, Mary, we just did Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford. And I think her performance in that movie is quintessential good, bad drag. I don't think it's a good performance, and I don't think it's a bad performance. And the things that I think are good about it are sometimes bad. So I don't know. I, I just think P 
people recognize Joan Crawford? Do they recognize that performance or, you know, Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest or even, you know, Edith Massey in John Waters movies, but which is different, but still that same idea of good and bad at the same time and sometimes for the same reasons. But Louise Lasser in Blood Rage is, oh, oh, she should be on this list. She is doing such interesting work. And there's this one extended sequence of her on the phone that we're going to dive into today because it is it is purely just a display of Louise Lasser acting. It's like watching, oh God, it's like watching a scene in an acting class. It is watching just a, you know, a performance. It's watching a five-minute uh, exercise. And I love it. I just love it. But I just want to get to a few things first. Uh, one, just a, a quick treatings I've seen on Netflix recently that may not be entirely new, but I feel like if you're listening, these recommendations or these mentions will mean something to you. This is, um, I, at this point, I think it's probably gotten lost in the mix of content on Netflix, but, and this is a little bit out of the range of typical things we talk about here on In the Details, but it's always good to mix it up. Um, and it's for the same reasons uh, that I queen out about anything else on In the Details, a nuanced woman. And that is, of course, the glass-blowing competition reality show called Blown Away. Listen, you might be thinking, ah, not interested. And I just have to say, I wasn't, in, in terms of the topic, wasn't interested either. But, oh, oh, my friends, come for the ride. Oh, watch Blown Away. First of all, my friend, my friend, it is like 21 minutes an episode. It is Canadian. It is it is kind. There's no meanness. There's no nastiness. There's no. It, it's all very kind media. The cast is made. They're all very likable people. All the contestants. Um, but who you come for and who you stay for is Deborah. She is at first to watch her. You think, oh, okay, I get it. She's just this like weirdo. And I'm telling you, it's she's so much more than just some glass blowing weirdo. Stick with it. Stick with her. There's, I don't know. It's like, I don't want to give anything away, but I fell in love with her and I, I saw her as like, not just this like weirdo. I saw her as like a real human being who knows she's weird and, and creates from that place. And I don't know. I was so charmed by her and I was so moved by her in some ways. There, there's a heart there as well. And I think that's what sells it, right? Is a weirdo with a heart. Um, you know, I can connect with that. Even if you live on another planet, like if your heart still beats the same way as the rest of us, I get it. I know who you are. I see you. And um, you're blowing me away, Deborah. Oh, my God. She's just so great. She's just so great. I feel like she is such a great Halloween costume. And if you watch it, you'll, my idea of a Halloween costume of Deborah would be, um, you know, sort of dark carpenter jeans, green T-shirt glasses like glasses and a white headband and I guess I need the wig but you know we'll see what happens but anyway I just I think you need to watch I think you need to watch blown away now I also I'm uh, John my boyfriend he and I are about halfway or more through the French series Marianne Marianne if you're American uh it is terrifying it is so scary and if you're listening to this now in the tail end of October, like now is the time to get some Marianne in your life. 
but I don't know if you should watch it by yourself, and I don't know if you should watch it by yourself in the dark, and if you have a house that has more rooms than the room you are in, then you definitely shouldn't watch it by yourself in the dark. It's great, though. Don't be afraid of the subtitles. Big deal. It, in one episode, it packs more scares than an entire you know, series, uh, you know, of some other garbage. And it is women on women on women. It is so many women. And I am loving that as well. So I don't want to give anything away. I kind of feel like with Marianne, what you should do is watch the trailer on Netflix. You'll get kind of a sense of, okay, there's some fucked up shit here. And then you should just start watching it. But essentially the main character, she's this best-selling novelist and she's got these demons that visit her in her, you know, no, actually just one demon that visits her in her dreams and, and her name is Marianne and she's here. Anyway, that's all I'm going to tell you. You, I, I, oh my God, it's so scary. And then finally, I feel like a lot of folks um, who are listening to this might also be interested in the show Unbelievable on Netflix, and you might already be watching it or have watched it. I'm only like, uh, I think I'm four episodes in. So I say this knowing that I probably haven't seen some of the media stuff, but I want to at least check in and say that I've seen it. Um, loving Tony Collette, obviously, you know, uh, about, uh, hello. I mean, anything that woman does at this point is gold post-hereditary. And she's great in this. Like she's, you know, she's solid. But who I'm, and I'm sure, you know, I'm judging the book before, you know, the, I've really gotten into the meat of the matter. But who I'm really loving right now is Merritt Weaver, who I adored on Nurse Jackie. She's, I mean, I love Nurse Jackie. We'll have to do a Nurse Jackie episode at some point because I could go on all day about that show. Edie Falco is freaking genius and so much of that show was filmed in Astoria like I know so many of the spots where they filmed that so that that just like it's just like I don't know sort of fun familiarity right uh and in some cases like lived either across the street or down the street from certain filming locations it was great um but I mean Merritt Weaver on that show as Zoe the the role is a great role but there's some sort of magic that she has that she brings to that role that feels very unique and I think if it were not for her that role just would not be as dynamic and I can't even really put my finger on what she's doing but it's it's just like a very unique interpretation that that feels fully realized like in some ways it's strange to watch her in Unbelievable because she so fully embodied Zoe in Nurse Jackie but she is so good in this again she brings this very um this human quality that like you're not seeing in other actors. Some actors give you performances that you feel like you could see from another actor. You know, you're like, oh, I could see so-and-so doing this. But there's something about the way that she approaches this role and, and you know, the roles that I've seen her in where it's like, it's her that makes it special, you know? And if someone else were to do it, it would just be a completely different situation entirely. You just can't replace her, I guess. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm excited to see how that develops, but... Uh, I will say Unbelievable is kind of tough. The first episode's kind of tough. The second one's a little rough. Um, but Merritt Weaver kind of dominates the second episode, so that helps. But, oh, and, oh, in the first episode, what's her name? Bridget Everett shows up. And I love Bridget Everett from this uh, failed Amazon show called Love You More, which I think I've talked about on here. Ugh, heartbreaking. Um, if I can find it and, like, put it somewhere that's easily found and watched by listeners then maybe i can do 
an episode about it because I don't want to talk about it and you can't even see it, you know, like two people have seen it, you know. Uh, anyway, that is just the sort of act one of this. I think we've covered everything before getting into Blood Rage, which, as I mentioned earlier, you may be familiar with because, of course, Blood Rage and, of course, the theme song from Blood Rage, the main theme, was a nuancy in the very first nuances um, that came out at the beginning of this year uh, and was also featured on Spooky Synths and other soundtrack surprises. I think it is only fair that we give this nuancy the stage to regale us once more with that sweet, sweet theme song. enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, so Blood Rage, if you if you haven't heard me talk about it before, is this wackadoo slasher that was made in like 1983, came out in 1987. The way it's described in IMDb is as follows. As kids, Todd is institutionalized for a murder while his twin goes free. I don't know why I am so goddamn joyful about that. Ten years later on Thanksgiving, Todd escapes and a killing spree begins in his neighborhood, which they don't add is in Florida. This movie is Florida. It is so Florida, and I love that. Now, Louise Lasser, she's no slouch. She has actually had a, I wouldn't say like sort of a, a a monumental career, but certainly a big career on TV. She is most well known for this bizarre show from like uh, the mid seventies called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which I think I've mentioned before on this podcast. I think I've mentioned it before when I've mentioned Louise Lasser. I think I've meant to talk about 
Blood Rage, Louise Lasser, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman for a while. And so we're kind of getting to it. We're not going to dive into Mary Hartman times two today. I think that might be its own episode. But that is, as IMDb describes, about a small town housewife who struggles to cope with the increasingly bizarre and violent events unfolding around her. Uh, and apparently it's it's kind of a comedy. I don't know. It's a strange show, I which I've only seen bits and pieces of. But Mary Kay places in it, who is fabulous. So, I mean... Two great women. Um, so eventually I'll get into Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. But uh, Louise Lasser. Louise Lasser. Now, is she slumming it? Is her career dying? It, it, it didn't appear like her career was dying when we got to about 1983. I mean, she was on a TV series that didn't last terribly long called It's a Living. She showed up on a couple episodes of Taxi. She was in a TV movie called Four Ladies Only. In 1980, she was in a movie called In God We Trust or Gimme That Primetime Religion. These movies, like I've never heard of this movie and it just exists. Um, you know, and then obviously then there was kind of like the period of time in between when Blood Rage was made and then when it was released in those few years and she was in a TV movie called Bedrooms. She was in a couple episodes of St. Elsewhere. She, you know, she did not, she worked. Um and continue to work afterwards. Um, and we're going to talk about one of uh, something that she she popped up in much later in her career that I just think is worth mentioning. I want to kind of queen out on some of her work here in Blood Rage. As I mentioned before, there is this amazing phone call. But I also want to just before we dive into it, just give a quick moment of appreciation for the final girl in Blood Rage, Karen. Um, played by Julie Gordon, who basically has very few credits to her name beyond this movie. But there's something about this girl. I mean, if I'm going to give you reasons to see Blood Rage, and if that theme song isn't enough, I don't know what is. But there's something about this girl that I like. Like, I think I did an episode last October about four forgotten final girls. I would put Julie on this list if I did it again, if it was four more forgotten final girls and who knows, you know, um, the night is young, but there's something about her. I think it's not so much that she's such a great final girl. It's a lot of running around. She's carrying a baby for a while. She, she doesn't so much fight back as run away. So maybe that's why she didn't make the list, but in the rest of the movie, there's something so likable about her and so sort of charming and, and natural. Like she's a way better actress than she has any right to be, I think is kind of the feeling. Um, like here's a little, you know, here's a little bit of Julie Gordon, just, just being Julie, you know, uh, or Karen, uh, and like, I don't know, I'm, she's great, I just, I, anyway, here she is. Terry? Oh my gosh, Terry, you scared me to death. Oh, I thought you were hiding from me. Oh, so, um. Listen, we didn't get much of a chance to talk at dinner, and, well, you want to talk? Hey, you're high, aren't you? <laughs> you always get real quiet when you're high. Well, Terry? Well, look, um, <clears throat> you know, we've both been away at school, and... I don't know, we haven't talked to each other, you haven't written me any letters, and I've hardly even seen you since you've gotten back. And, I don't know, Terry, I just love you a lot, and, well, I want you to make love to me. You're shocked, huh? <laughs> 
Well, Terry, come on. I wish you'd say something. I'm not Terry. I'm Todd. Um, Terry's brother? Oh, my God. I mean, um, so you're home for the holidays, huh? Y you seem nice. I've never kissed a girl before. Oh, yeah? Well, um, you really ought to try it sometime. I gotta go. Bye. But now let's get to it. Let's get to Louise's phone call. Now, okay, this is the scene. This is what we're going to talk about today after 20 minutes. In, in terms of what happens in the movie, I mean, oh, my God. I, okay. Colin, one thought at a time. So as, as things progress throughout this evening of carnage, she's mostly left waiting in the apartment. Uh, and I, I appreciate, I mean, the movie didn't know what to do with her. And I think, I couldn't find this interview, but I think it got removed from YouTube. But there was an interview with Louise Lasser where she talked about this, of all the little different, like, things that she does in in the movie that I think essentially were, like, things she came up with. She was like, well, uh, I guess I could vacuum while drinking a glass of wine. I guess I could sit on the kitchen floor and eat green beans out of a bowl. Um, oh, there's an ambulance passing outside. It's so ominous. Basically... So basically, I think a lot of the magic that that comes out of her in this movie is because of her, because it's certainly not in the script. So I think Terry's sort of murderous tendencies are reignited when Louise Lasser's character, Maddie, announces that she's getting engaged to her boyfriend, Brad, because it's never really explained. I mean, there's like an opening murder in the movie and, and uh, Terry kills this couple that's like hooking up in a car. So these kids, there's some kind of like sex and violence connection here, which a lot of slashers have. But they don't really bother to try to really, you know, make the two sides of the paper stick. You know what I mean? So Maddie and Brad get engaged and then, um, you know, Terry loses his shit. And then eventually he kills Brad in Brad's office because Brad look, like owns the apartment complex. So he kills Brad. And so later on in the movie, after Maddie has eaten the green beans and done the vacuuming and gotten drunk. And, and I guess she's taken a shower or something because she's sitting on the couch. She's in her bathrobe. She's, you know, her hair is slicked back wet and she's trying to call Brad's office. But apparently the phone is off the hook and she's trying to talk to the operator and get the operator to put her through. And it is, I mean, the fact that the man's office is in within walking distance, but she is desperately just trying to make this phone call happen that in and of itself is just sort of a fantastic framing for all of this but it is how she handles this it's sort of like three different segments that are interspliced with other scenes so i'm gonna play for you now the first section and again just to set it up the camera there's no cuts there is you know there's no fancy camera work it is basically like she's doing a screen test again she is sitting cross-legged in a bathrobe after a shower and she is trying to convince an operator that this is an emergency in working order that number is in working order oh no 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 that's impossible it's impossible you must have dialed the wrong number no, he's definitely there. Could you please just recheck that number for me? Because this is a real emergency. Why not? Look. Look, look. Look. You don't seem to understand. This is a real emergency. This is a real emergency. I mean, he is definitely there. He 
He's waiting for my call right now. He's sitting there and waiting for my call. This is very important. Operator, I am begging you. This is a real, real emergency. What's the matter with you? I mean, you you got to give it to her. Is And again, the scene is not over, but there is an exercise in restraint here. There is... The, when it starts, there's really no body language. She's not moving. She's not getting agitated in any way. But as she starts to get agitated, which you can hear, and the music kind of starts to cue it, th- there's just there's something about the way, like the the way that her hand starts to move, and the way that there's like a pointing that's happening, and there's like a gesturing, but there's nobody there, and. It's and it's like that's sort of an automatic thing that people do. I mean, I'm sitting here right now. No one's looking at me, and my hands are just like, I mean, they're flying like a couple of you know Boeing 737s over here. So I get it, but I think when you think about it as a performance, and you think about what Louise Lasser's doing and how she's performing agitation and how she's signaling, not just with the raising of her voice, which she's doing in a relatively measured way, but in the way that her body is sort of getting involved as well. It's a level of nuance that I don't think this movie deserves, and I that's why I love it. I like the way that she says, emergency! Like, there's that, you know, I love a raspy-voiced woman. I love a, I love when someone needs to clear their throat, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's something about that. This is a real, real emergency! What's the matter with you? And so we, then we get to the next segment, and the operators come up with a good idea, because as Louise says... Oh, great. That's a great idea. That's great. Oh, operator, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yes, I'll wait. She gets some. There's some. Okay. Oh, that's a great idea. I and I. I don't know why I love that we are coming in in the middle of the conversation after the idea. I don't know. I guess I appreciate that sort of showing and not telling. Not that this this movie is like you know great at that, but here's a moment of it. So the operator does their great idea that I guess no one could figure out what it was, but somehow to try the line again. And, of course, um, that doesn't work. And so the operator comes back on. But then it's this next segment here where Maddie is getting into what's really going on, where she starts to talk about Todd. And there's, there's, I mean, the music is obviously a great cue for this, but she is selling this material. Hello? Ah, well, the problem is that... um, my son just escaped from his school. Well, actually, he ran away. Actually, it, it's a mental institution. He ran away from his mental institution. Now, um, well, uh, well, now, I was there earlier today to bring him his pie. I, I always bring him an individual. put it in a little box with string in the bakery. And I just love how she gets lost in the story. And as Maddie is, is telling the story to an operator on the phone, I mean, that context in of itself is so, like, sad and strange. But 
the way that she like you know bringing her hands kind of close to her face or the way that she kind of um sort of reaches out a little bit or points or um it's like she's telling the story to herself or like she's forgetting that she's on the phone with somebody else it's just her kind of alone putting pieces together you know and there's kind of this lost look in her eye that starts to settle in and I and the music is like again this isn't the amazing nuancy winning um main theme of Blood Rage but this music as well is very affecting. So it's very like Henrik Gorecki. I'm really into it. So she goes through this brilliant monologue and there's and then you know I think in that last little part she goes you know like from the bakery like she looked at that block of text and figured out where to pause and where to wait and what to whisper on. What to, it, it, uh, she just, this, this acting exercise is just so fantastic. And so then the operator clearly says something and it kind of starts to snap Maddie back into reality. What? What? What number do I want? Get me my boyfriend. No, please get me my boyfriend. Well, sort of back to reality. That, that, that moment when she says, what number do I want? Like we start to realize like Maddie is, has, is disconnected from her reality. And I mean, can you blame her, right? Like if you can see the human side of this story, it's just, you know, this woman has just been playing ping pong away from pain through her life, you know? And, and she thinks that she's finally landed, you know, the jackpot of Brad, the owner of the complex, and everything is all going to be, um, everything's going to finally come together in her life. And it just does not. And so, you know, why, I don't know, I, I kind of see this human side of Maddie where I'm like, well, yeah, I guess, I guess she just needs to kind of marry Tyrone it, you know? But then that moment where she it's like then kind of gets a little more lucid and starts to cry and says, get me my boyfriend. I I just I think that needs to be my ringtone. I think. Um, oh, poor John. I might have to make that like the ringtone of every time he texts me. Get me my boyfriend. No, please get me my boyfriend. So that happens in the music. I love the plinking of the piano. I, I love the talking through tears. I love I love the fact that she's just not getting up and getting her boyfriend herself. It's like she it's as if she is immobile. It's as if she is, you know, you know, paralyzed. He is probably like a 45 second walk. And then in this last little scene after some other couple gets killed, it cuts back to Louise, Maddie, you know, same diff on the couch. And clearly the operator has hung up on her, which, again, this kind of interesting storytelling of, of bringing us back in after something has happened or been said. And we just hear the dial tone, and I don't know why, but like this last little hook here, this last little part of this sequence here, it's like, oh, now I understand why she's not getting up and going to find Brad. Not now. Not nice. Please don't. Please don't leave me alone here. 
you know, I think the way that she says, you know, not, not now, not nice. You know, oh, that's, I mean, that's so like strangely poetic, right? Uh, and, and the sort of, she is paralyzed, you know, and she's holding the phone and she's staring at it and saying, please, like, please don't do this to me. Please don't leave me alone. Like, I realize, like, oh, the reason she is not getting up to go check on Brad is because in some way she already knows. And this is another way in which she's creating a buffer in her life in between, like, the awfulness of it and her. And now there's, you know, she she's trying to get this, like, phone operator to, to be a buffer for her and to somehow put Brad on the line and save her from the inevitable of having to go check on him and having to go admit you know, to reality that if he hasn't come back or he hasn't called, it's probably because something's wrong. And I, um, I think that kind of nuance again, like has no right to be in this movie, but Louise Lasser, I guess just left your own devices. was like, Oh, I have an idea. I know I'll, I can find some texture in here somewhere. Um, that being said, you know, this, I, I don't want to spoil it because it's on Amazon Prime. I think it's on YouTube. I kind of feel like you should watch this. Um, and it, it, if not, then you can just like, I don't know, you can just go watch the ending if you don't really care about the whole narrative. But there's something about the end of this movie that it feels to me, and I don't think the director or the writers knew this. I don't think anyone knew this. But there is something that like feels like Greek tragedy to the final scene. I think... The fact that it's a mother and her children and it's by the water. There's sort of this like Medea element towards the end. Um, but I think all of, it, like, all of the final set piece just feels like Greek tragedy. And I think that's just like consistent with this movie that there's just elements of it that are these kind of like, you know, shining truffles in the mud. But overall, I, I kind of love this movie. I've watched it three or four times at least. Um, would totally watch it again. It, it's, it's, I think that's kind of what cult campy, you know, horror movies or any sort of cult campy movie does is it doesn't know what it's doing. It doesn't know it's being weird. It doesn't know the strange note that it's hitting. It's not onto itself. Like you, I just think that if all of the wackadoo energy of this movie was intentional, it wouldn't work. We would see somewhere the hand in that, you know? It's like when somebody does something that they're trying to set in a certain time period or they're trying to make a movie look like an 80s slasher or whatever, there's always like too much. They almost play the nuances or they not really nuances. It's actually too broad. They play the details or they play the kind of elements in which they're trying to set this in a time or in a certain aesthetic. They play them too hard. And so like, you're okay, I see what you're trying to do versus what you're actually doing um, or what you think you're doing. Is this making sense? I just think that Blood Rage didn't know what it was doing and that's why it's so great. Um, the other thing I want to just mention is um, in terms of Louise Lasser, I'd, I noted earlier that there's a, a later credit in her career that I think is worth watching. And that is a small but interesting role in Requiem for a Dream. Uh, she plays one of Ellen Burson's characters, Friends in the Neighborhood, and sort of is one of the key players. Like she's there's sort of like a featured friend, I would say. Um, it's her, and then it's also because they have the scene at the end that I have that that's haunted me in the same way that some of the more violent stuff in the movie has haunted me. Um, but there is this scene at the end, kind of after I don't want to ruin it for you if um, if you haven't seen it, but 
obviously the movie doesn't end particularly well for anybody. And in the end, Louise Lasser's character, Ada, and then um, Sarah's other friend, Ray, played by Marsha Jean Kurtz, they come to the hospital to to see Sarah. And it is not good, um, as you might expect. She just wanted to wear the red dress, you know? And there's this scene at the... Um, kind of in the montage of the ending of Ada and Ray sitting outside of the hospital hugging and crying. And it it lasts like a few seconds longer than I expected it to. And it's it's haunting because this is, this is something that I love and that I pick up on is whenever like a side supporting character gets to have some emotional weight in the story. And I think for these two women who of course kind of helped encourage Sarah to go on these pills, for them to be seen grieving in this moment and to be shown grieving longer than we need to know that they're grieving, like to sort of indulge that, to actually watch characters experience something versus them being devices, I think is, is it, those couple extra seconds make all the difference, you know? Um, and I remember like the first time I saw this movie or I saw like at least parts of it, and it's when Sarah kind of comes out to the waiting room where Ada and Ray are waiting for her and Ada stands up and she kind of rises up into the shot. And I remember that scene because I remember thinking there was something so like Eastern European looking about her, this woman. I thought, oh, she just looks like one of those like, um, you know, old Russian women in Bensonhurst or something, you know. And I didn't even know it was Louise Lasser. I didn't know what a Louise Lasser was. But that shot always stuck with me is, is – the emotional weight of her seeing Sarah because that actually cues us to how bad it is, you know? Um, but I don't know. I, I just, you know, if you have not seen Requiem for a Dream, I, I mean, you know, at your own, at your own caution, you know, it's, it's a dark movie. Great soundtrack. Jesus Christ. But um, Ellen Burstyn, absolutely robbed the Oscars such an unbelievable performance it's like shocking to me but I guess Julie Roberts Aaron Brockovich whatever um but yeah I think if anything if you have seen it before definitely um on your next rewatch because I'm sure you just love popping in Requiem for a Dream uh you should keep an eye out for Ada she's really fabulous and I think that's actually all I've got to cover today. That's pretty much all I wanted to say on the matter. Um, I, if you have seen Blood Rage, I'm very, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to know what you think about it, what you think about this performance. If you've seen Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, I'd love to hear what you think about that. If there's other, if you've seen Unbelievable or Blown Away or Marianne, you want to talk about that. Or really, honestly, anything you want to talk about, I'll probably talk to you about it. So if you want to do that, all you got to do is drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. Um, you can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Colin Drucker or Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore. And of course, if you want to be hearing more of me queening out on actresses, in particular best supporting ones, and in particular with Nick Kachanov, then you can listen to my brand new podcast, Best Supporting Podcast. We already have our first, I think by now, our first two or three episodes will be out so um get to binging it's great i fucking love that podcast so anyway coming up in the next couple weeks i i mean and i might even squeeze a couple episodes into one week because i want to get it all into october i've got two fabulous guests coming up i am so excited about this uh otherwise i think that's all i've got and so thank you for joining me this week to dive into and queen out on all of louise lasser's acting choices all of blood rage's micro moments and all of the magic and the minutiae that make that wackadoo movie great so yeah